Chapter Ten of *The Glory of Clementina Wing* by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Ten. When they swung round the great bend of the Rhone and Vienne came in sight, Tommy uttered a cry of exultation. "Oh, Clementina, let us stay here for a week." When they stood an hour afterwards on the great suspension bridge that connects Vienne with the little town of Saint Colombe and drank in the afternoon beauty of the place, Tommy amended his proposition. "'Oh, Clementina,' said he, "'let us stay here for ever.' Clementina sighed, and watched the broad blue river sweeping in its majestic curve between the wooded mountains from whose foliage peeped a myriad human habitations, the ancient Chateau Fort de la Batie standing a brave and mutilated sentinel on its dominating hill, the nestling town with its Byzantine towers and tiled roofs, the Gothic west front of the cathedral framed by the pylons of the bridge, the green boulevarded embankment, and the fort of saint Colombe in its broader and more smiling valley guarded, it too, by its grim square tower, the laughing peace of the infinite web of afternoon shadow and afternoon sunlight. Away up the stream a barge moved slowly down under a sail of burnished gold. A few moments afterwards, coming under the lee of the mountains, the sail turned into what Tommy, who pointed it out, called a dream-coloured brown, from which it may be deduced that Tommy was growing poetical. In former times Clementina would have rebuked so nonsensical a fancy, but now, with a nod, she acquiesced. Nay more, she openly agreed. We who live in a sunless room in the midst of paint-pots know nothing of the beauty of the world. That's true, said Tommy. We hope, when we are tired, that there is such a place as the land of dreams, but we imagine it somewhere east of the sun and west of the moon. We don't realise that all we've got to do to get there is to walk out of our own front door. It all depends upon the inward eye, doesn't it? said the boy. Or perhaps, indeed, it needs a double inward eye. Two personalities, you know, harmonised in a subtle sort of way, so as to bring it into focus. You see what I mean? I don't think I could get the whole dreamy adorableness of this if I hadn't you beside me. Do you mean that, Tommy? she asked, with eyes fixed on the roan. Of course I do, he replied earnestly. Her lips worked themselves into a smile. I never thought my personality could harmonise with any other on God's earth. You've lived a life of horrible rank injustice. She started as if hurt. Well, don't say that. But to yourself, I mean, dearest Clementina. You never allowed yourself a good quality. Now you're beginning to find out your mistake. When it's pointed out that I can harmonise with your beautiful nature. At the flash of the old Clementina, Tommy laughed. I'm not going to deny that there's good in me. Why should I? If there wasn't, I shouldn't be here. You wouldn't have asked me to be your companion, he added quickly, fearing lest she might put a wrong construction on his words. When a good woman does a man the honour of admitting him to her intimate companionship, he knows he's good, and it makes him feel better. Her left elbow rested on the parapet of the bridge, and her chin rested on the palm of her hand. Without looking at him, she stretched out the other hand and touched him. "'Thank you for saying that, Tommy,' she said in a low voice. Their mutual relations had modified considerably during the journey. The change, in the first place, had come instinctively from Tommy. Hitherto Clementina had represented little to his ingenuous mind but the rough and ready comrade, the good sort, the stunning portrait-painter. With many of his men-friends he was on practically the same terms. Quite unconsciously he patronised her ever so little, 
as the prince charmings of life's fairy tale are apt to patronise those who are not quite so charming or quite so princely as themselves. When he had dined with the proud and gorgeous, he loved to strut before her, aureoled in his reflected splendour, not for a moment remembering that had Clementina chosen to throw off her social nonconformity, she could have sat in high places at the houses of such a proud and gorgeous hierarchy as he, Tommy Burgrave, could not hope for many years to consort with. Sometimes he treated her as an old family nurse, who spoiled him, sometimes as a bearded master. He teased her, chafed her, laid traps to catch her sharp sayings, greeting her with hello, and parted from her with an airy wave of the hand. But as soon as they set off on their travels, the subtle change took place, which the fact of his being her guest could only, in small degree, account. Being in charge of all arrangements, and thus asserting his masculinity, he saw Clementina in a new light. For all her unloveliness, she was a woman. For all her lack of convention, she was a lady, born and bred. She was as much under his protection as any dame or damsel of the proud and gorgeous to whom he might have had the honour to act as escort. And without a moment's self-consciousness, he began to treat Clementina with the same courteous solicitude as he would have treated such dame or damsel, or, for the matter of that, any other woman of his acquaintance. Whereas, a month or two before, he would have tramped by her side for miles, without the thought of her possible fatigue entering his honest head, now her inability to stroll about the streets of these little provincial towns without physical exhaustion caused him grave anxiety. He administered to her comfort in a thousand ways. He saw to the proper working of the shutters in her room, to the smooth opening of the drawers and presses, put the fear of God into the hearts of chambermaids and valets through the medium of a terrific lingua franca of his own invention, supplied her with roses, rose early every morning to scour the town for a New York herald so that it could be taken up to Clementina's room with her coffee and petit croissant. His habit of speech, too, became more deferential, and his discourse gained in depth and sincerity what it lost in picturesque vernacular. To sum up the whole of the foregoing in a phrase, Tommy's attitude towards Clementina grew to be that of an extremely nice boy towards an extremely nice maiden aunt. This change of attitude acted very powerfully on Clementina. As she had remarked, it was a new sensation to be taken care of, one which she liked very much indeed. All the sternly repressed feminine in her, all that she called the silly fool woman, responded to the masculine strength and delicacy of touch. She, on her side, saw Tommy in a new light. He developed from the boy into the man. He was responsible, practical, imperious in his frank, kindly, Anglo-Saxon way. It was a new joy for the woman, who since girlhood had fought single-handed for her place in the world, to sit still and do nothing, while difficulties vanished before his bright presence, just as the crests of alarming steeps vanished before the irresistible rush of the car. Once, when a loud report and the grinding of the wheels announced a puncture, she cried involuntarily, "'I'm so glad!' Tommy laughed. Well, of all the feminine reasons for gladness. Clementina basked in her femininity, like a lizard in the sun. I suppose it's because you can sit in the shade and watch Johnson and me toiling and broiling like niggers on the road. She blushed beneath her swarthy skin. That was just it. She loved to see him throw off his coat and grapple like a young Hercules with the tire. For Johnson's much more efficient exertions, she cared not a scrap. Her heart was full of new delights. 
It was a new delight to feel essentially what she in her irony used to term a lady, to be addressed with deference and tenderness, to have her desires executed just that instant before specific formulation which gives charm and surprise. Every day she discovered a new and unsuspected quality in Tommy, and every evening she dwelt upon the sweetness, freshness, and strength of his nature. The lavender fragrance, the nice maiden entity of her relations with Tommy, I am afraid she missed. It gave her an odd little thrill of pleasure when Tommy propounded his theory of the perfect focal adjustment of the good in their natures. When he implicitly gave her rank as an angel, she was deeply moved. So she stretched out her hand and touched him, and said, "'Thank you.' "'You said nothing about my proposals to stay here for ever,' he remarked after a while. "'I'm quite ready,' she replied absently. "'Why shouldn't we?' Tommy pointed out a white shadow that flashed through the greenery of the hill behind the cathedral. "'That's the place we'll take. We'll fill it with books, chiefly sermons, and flowers, chiefly poppies, and we'll smoke hashish instead of tobacco, and we'll sleep and paint dream pictures all the rest of our lives.' "'I suppose you can't conceive life, even a dream life, without pictures to paint in it?' "'Not exactly,' said he. "'Can you? I shouldn't be painting pictures in my dream life.' "'What would you be doing?' But Clementina did not reply. She looked at the brave old sentinel fort, glowing red in the splendour of the westering sun. Tommy continued. "'I'm sure you would be painting. How do you think a musician could face an existence without music? Or a golfer without golf?' And he broke into his fresh laugh. I wonder what dream golf would be like. It would be a sort of mixed arrangement, I guess, with stars for balls, and clouds for bunkers, and meads of asphodels for putting greens. He suddenly lifted his hands, palm facing palm, and looked through them at the framed picture. Clementina, dear, if I don't get that old Tour de la Batie with the sunset on it, I'll die. It'll take eternity to get it right, and that's why we must stay here for ever. Well, stay as long as you like, said Clementina and you can paint to your heart's content.' "'You're the dearest thing in the world,' said Tommy. Dinner-time drew near. They left the bridge reluctantly, and mounted the great broad flight of forty steps that led to the west door of the cathedral. A few of the narrow side streets brought them into the Place Miramont, where their hotel was situated. In the lazy late afternoon warmth it looked the laziest and most peaceful spot inhabited by man. The square, classic town library, hermetically closed, its inner mysteries hidden behind drawn blinds, stood in its midst like a mausoleum of dead and peaceful thoughts. Nothing living troubled it, save a mongrel dog asleep on the steps. No customer ruffled the tranquillity of the shops around the place. A red-trousered, blue-coated little soldier, so little that he looked like a toy soldier, and an old man in a blouse, who walked very slowly in the direction of the café were the only humans on foot. Even the hotel omnibus, rattling suddenly into the square, failed to break the spell of quietude. For it was empty, and its emptiness gave a pleasurable sense of distance from the fever and the fret of life. It is even said that Pontius Pilate found peace in Vienne, lying, according to popular tradition, under a comparatively modern monolith termed the Aiguille. "'Are you quite sure this place isn't too dead and alive for you?' Clementina asked, as they approached the hotel. He slid his hand under her arm. "'Oh, no!' he cried, with a little reassuring squeeze. "'It's heavenly!' 
While she was cleansing herself for dinner, Clementina looked in the glass. Her hair, as usual, straggled untidily over her temples. She wore it bunched up anyhow in a knot behind, and the resentful hairpins invariably failed in their office. This evening she removed the faithful few, the saving remnant that for the world's good remains in all communities, even of hairpins, and her hair, thick and black, fell about her shoulders. She combed it, brushed it, brought it up to the top of her head, and, twisting it into a neat coil, held it there with her hand, and for a moment or two studied the effect somewhat dreamily. Then all of a sudden a change of mood swept over her. She let the hair down again, almost savagely wound it into its accustomed clump into which she thrust hairpins at random, and turned away from the mirror, her mouth drawn into its old, grim lines. Tommy found her rather uncommunicative at dinner, which was served to them at a separate side-table. At the table d'hôte in the middle of the room, eight or nine men, habitués and commercial travellers, fed in stolid silence. She ate little. Tommy, noticing it, openly reproached himself for having caused her fatigue. The day in the open air, an open air pumped into the lungs at the rate of thirty or forty miles an hour, was of itself tiring. He ought not to have dragged her about the town. Besides, he added with an appearance of great wisdom, a surfeit of beauty gave one a soul-ache. They feasted on nothing but beauty since they'd left Chanon-Sonson that morning. He too had a touch of soul-ache, but luckily it did not interfere with his carnal appetite. It ought not to interfere with Clementina's. Here was the whitest and tenderest morsel of chicken that ever was, and the crispest bit of delectable salad. He helped her from the dish which she had refused at the hands of the waiter, and she ate meekly. But after dinner she sent him off to the café by himself, saying that she would read a novel in the salon, and go to bed early. The loneliness of the salon, instead of resting her, got on her nerves, which angered her. What business had she, Clementina Wing, with nerves? Or was Tommy right? Perhaps it was a soul-ache from which she was suffering. Certainly one strove to pack away into oneself anything of beauty, making it a part of one's spiritual being. One could be a glutton and suffer from the consequences. The soul-ache, if such it were, had nothing of origin in the emotions that had prompted her touch on Tommy's arm, or the coiling of her hair on the top of her head. Nothing at all. Besides, it was a very silly novel, a modern French version of Daphnis and Chloe, in which Daphnis featured as a despicable young neuropath whom Tommy would have kicked on sight, and Chloe a sly hussy whom a sensible mother would have spanked. She threw it into a corner, and went to her room to brace her mind with Tristram Shandy. She had not been long there, however, when there came a knocking at her door. On her invitation to enter, the door opened, and Tommy stood breathless on the threshold. His eyes were bright, and he was quivering with excitement. "'Do come out! Do come out and see something! I hit upon it unawares, and it knocked me silly. I've run all the way back to fetch you.' "'What is it?' "'Something too exquisite for words.' "'What about the soul-ache?' "'Oh, let us have an orgy while we're about it,' he cried recklessly. "'It's worth it. Do come. I want you to feel the thing with me.' The appeal was irresistible. It was spirit summoning spirit. Without thinking, but dimly conscious of a quick throbbing of the heart, Clementina put on her hat and went with Tommy out of the hotel. The full moon blazed from a cloudless sky, flooding the little silent square. She paused on the pavement. "'Yes, it's beautiful,' she said. 
"'Oh, that's only the silly old moon,' cried Tommy. "'I've got something much better for you than that.' "'What is it?' she asked again. "'You wait,' said he. He took her across the square, through two or three turns of narrow, cobble-paved streets, whirled her swiftly round a corner, and said, "'Look!' Clementina looked, and walked straight into the living heart of the majesty that once was Rome. There, in the midst of an open space, the modern houses around it obscured, softened, decharacterized by the magic-working moon, stood in its proud and perfect beauty the temple of Augustus and Livia. Twenty centuries, with all their meaning, vanished in a second. It was the heart of Rome. There was the great temple, perfect, imperishable, with its fluted Corinthian columns, its entablature, its pediment, its noble cornice throwing endless mysteries of shadow. No ruin from which imagination flogged by scholarship might dimly picture forth what once had been, but the temple itself, untouched, haughty, defying time, the companion for two thousand years of the moon that now bathed it lovingly, as a friend of two thousand years standing must do, in its softest splendour, and sharing with the moon its godlike scorn of the hectic and transitory life of man. Clementina drew a sharp breath of wonder. Moisture clouded her eyes. She could not speak for the suddenness of the shock of beauty. Tommy gently took her arm, and they stood for a long time in silence, close together. In their artist's sensitiveness they were very near together, in spirit. She glanced at his face in the moonlight, alive with the joy of the thing, and her heart gave a sudden leap. All the beauty of the day translated itself into something even more radiant, that flooded her soul, causing the rows of fluted columns to swim before her eyes until she shut them with a little sigh of content. At last they moved and walked slowly round the building. "'I just couldn't help fetching you,' said Tommy. "'Oh, I'm glad you did.' "'Oh, so glad. Why didn't we know of this before we came?' "'Because we are two thrice-blessedly ignorant cockneys, dear.' I hate to know what I'm going to see. It's much better to be like stout Cortez and his men in the poem, and discover things, isn't it? By Jove, I shall never forget running into this. Nor I, said Clementina. The moment the car turned the bend to-day, I knew something was going to happen here. More had happened than Tommy dreamed of in his young philosophy. Nor did Clementina enlighten him. She slid his arm from under hers, and took it, and leaned ever so little on it, for the first time for many, many years, a happy woman. When they left the temple, she pleaded for an extension of their walk. She was no longer tired. She could go on for ever beneath such a moon. "'A night made for lovers,' said Tommy. "'And we aren't the only ones. Look!' And indeed there were couples sauntering by, head to head, talking of the things the moon had heard so many million times before. "'I suppose they take us also for lovers,' said Clementina foolishly. "'I don't care if they do,' said Tommy. "'Let us pretend.' "'Yes,' said Clementina. "'Let us pretend.' They wandered thus, lover-like, through the town, and came on the quay where they sat on the coping of the parapet and watched the moonlit Rhone and the brave old chateau-fort on the hill. "'Are you glad you came with me?' she asked. "'It has been a sort of enchanted journey.' he replied seriously. And to-night, well, to-night is just to-night. 
There are no words for it. I've never thanked you. There are things too deep for thanks. In return I would give you everything I've got, in myself, you know, if you wanted it. In fact, he added with a boyish laugh, I've given it to you already, whether you want it or not. I do want it, Tommy, she said, with a catch in her voice. You don't know how much I want it. Then you have a devoted, devoted, devoted slave for the rest of your life. I do believe you are fond of me. Fond of you, he cried. Why, of course I am. There's not another woman like you in the world. He took her hand and kissed it. Bless you, he said. Then he rose. We've sat out here long enough. Your hands are quite cold, and you've only that silly blouse on. You'll catch a chill. I'm quite warm, said Clementina, mendaciously. But she obeyed him with surprising meekness. If any one had had a sufficiently fantastic imagination and sufficient audacity to prophesy to Clementina before she started from London the effect upon her temperament of a Roman temple and moonshine, she would have said things in her direct way uncomplimentary to his intelligence. She would have forgotten her own epigram to the effect that woman always has her sex hanging round the neck of her spirit. But her epigram had proved its truth. She was feeling a peculiar graciousness in the focal adjustment above considered, was letting her spirit soar with its brother to planes of pure beauty, when, lo, suddenly, spirit was hurled from the Empyrean into the abyss by the thing clinging round its neck, which took its place on the said planes with a pretty gurgle of exultation. That is what had happened. And is it not all too natural? There are plants which will keep within them a padded life in a coal cellar, but put in the sun and the air and the rain will break magically into riotous leaf and bud and flower. Love, foolish, absurd, lunatic, reprehensible, what you will, had come into the sun and the air and the rain, and it had broken magically into blossom. Of course she had no business to bring it into the air. She ought to have kept it in the coal cellar. She ought not to have let the door be opened by the wheedlings of a captivating youth. In plain language, a woman of six-and-thirty ought never to have fallen in love with a boy of twenty-three. Of course not. A vehement, passionate nature is the easiest thing in the world to keep under control. A respectable piece of British tape ought to be strong enough leash for any tiger of the jungle. That Clementina, ill-favoured and dire, should have given herself up in the solitude of her room to her intoxication is no doubt a matter for censure. It was mad and bad and sad, but it was sweet. It was human. The rare ones from whom no secrets of a woman's pure heart are hid might say that it was divine. But the many who pity let them not grudge her hour of joy to a woman of barren life. But it was only an hour. The grey dawn crept into the sleepless room, and the glamour of the moonlight had gone. And there was a desperate struggle in the woman's soul. The boy's words rang in her ears. He was fond of her devoted to her, would give up his life to her. He spoke sincerely. Why should she not take the words at a little above their face value? No strong-natured woman of five-and-thirty, with Clementina's fame and wealth and full great sympathy, need fear rebuff from a generous lad who professes himself to be her devoted, devoted, devoted slave. All she has to do is to put up the bands. Whether ultimate bliss will be achieved is another matter. 
but to marry him out of hand is as easy as lying. It did not need Clementina's acute intelligence for her to be fully aware of this. And another temptation crept over her pillow to her ear, peculiarly insidious. The boy would be free to pursue his beloved art without sordid cares. There would be no struggle and starvation and fringed hems to his trousers. A woman who really loves a man would sooner her heart were frayed than his trouser hems. She rose, and threw wide the shutters. The little Place Miramont looked ghostly in the white light, and the classic bibliothèque with its round-headed windows more than ever a mausoleum of human wisdom. It is strange how coldly suggested of death is the birth of day. Clementina crept back to bed, and, tired out, fell asleep. The waiter bringing in the breakfast tray awakened her. On the New York Herald, which Tommy had gone to the railway station to procure, lay a dewy cluster of red and yellow roses. On a plate, a pile of letters, the top one addressed in Etta Concannon's great girlish scrawl. Why in the world should a bunch of parrot tulips have flared before her eyes? They did. They had marked the beginning of it. The red and yellow roses marked the end. Attendez un moment, she said to the waiter, while she tore open the envelope and glanced through Etta's unimportant letter. Bring me a telegraph form. He produced one from his pocket. If you ask a waiter in a good French provincial hotel for anything, a copy of Buckle's History of Civilization or a bootjack, he will produce it from his pocket. He also handed her a pencil. Then she bit musingly for a few seconds. Then she scribbled hastily on the telegraph form. Join me at once. Book straight through to Lyon. Wire train. We'll meet you at station. Promise you. Her lips twisted into a wry smile as the word she sought entered her head. Heavenly time. My guest, of course. Clementina, Hôtel du Nord, Vienne. By the way, garçon, she said, handing him the telegram, why is this called the Hôtel du Nord? Parce que, madame, c'est ici, à Vienne, que commence le midi, replied the waiter. He bowed himself out. A courtier of Versailles at the levee of the Pompadour could not have made his speech an exit with better grace. Later in the day Clementina received the reply from Etta. "'You, darling, starting to-morrow. Arrive Lyon, seven o'clock morning, Thursday.' Tommy, fired by the picture made by the bend of the Rhone and the Chateau Fort de la Batie, spent most of the day on the quay with the paraphernalia of his trade, easel and canvas and box of colours and brushes, painting delightedly while Clementina, beneath an uncompromising white umbrella with a green lining, bought on her travels, sat nearby, reading many tales out of one uncomprehended novel. Just before dinner she informed him of the almost immediate arrival of Etta Concannon. "'Oh, I say!' he exclaimed in an injured voice. "'That spoils everything!' "'I don't think so,' said Clementina. End of chapter 10